Cape Up is sponsored by Bowl and Branch. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. Promo code CAPEUP. Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Talk about a fortuitous interview. Senator Tim Kaine, member of the Armed Services Committee and Foreign Relations Committee, is here. He weighs in on North Korea, the drama in Canada, and the demons unleashed by President Trump right now. Senator Kane, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Jonathan, uh, real glad to be with you. On uh, June 12th, the president of the United States is um, meeting with the leader of North Korea. Am I wrong in thinking that President Trump just handed Kim Jong-un a victory just by agreeing to meet with him? Um, I think he did. He did. He handed him a victory. I'm not in the, the super negative side where it says that's always bad. I'm glad we're willing to dialogue because dialogue guarantees nothing, but the absence of dialogue usually produces bad outcomes. So, look, I'm not, I'm not upset that they're meeting, but you're right, that there is a significant victory for Kim Jong-un within his own country and on the world stage by being able to pull this meeting off. You know, someone made the point that his sort of nighttime tour of Singapore guaranteed that the Tuesday morning papers in Singapore, the day when the summit's supposed to happen, his face would be would be all over them. Do you have any kind of confidence that uh, the president of the United States is going to not let that bother him? Uh, no, that's a real good point. Uh, yeah, it'll probably bug him. It probably will bug him. Um, you know, what What I, I have very strong feelings that there are some aspects of this president's national security team, Secretary Mattis, um, General Dunford, that are really smart. There are also some people I think are kind of nutty. And the question is, who is he names? listening to? Want to put some names? I, I, Bolton's nutty. Steve Miller's nutty. When I see those pictures of them all sitting together and Steve Miller's right at the table there, it's like if I were one of the smart people at the table, people really thoughtful about national security, I would say, why is that guy there? Because I think he's there uh, worrying about the president's sort of domestic political image and not really a thoughtful person about national security. So the president has this team where he's got a mixture of super savvy and kind of conspiratorial and nutty. And as we know, that that's a tug of war that's going on. And who does the president president listen to each day? And, mm-hmm. and that depends. But at the bottom line, um, the dialogue is better than no dialogue. The White House should have to sub- if they were to come up with any deal, they should have to submit it to Congress. You know, I was I was there when the Republicans demanded President Obama cannot do a nuclear deal with Iran without submitting it to Congress. And as a friend of President Obama, I agreed with that. Mm-hmm. So we made him submit it to Congress and that it had to get a green light, not a red light. At a minimum, we should expect the exact same thing out of this. We shouldn't put too many conditions on it in advance, but the president should have to bring it back and sell it to Congress and through Congress to the American people. Now, you've said a couple of times now that dialogue is dialogue is not bad. But when it comes to North Korea, no other U.S. president has met with a North Korean leader, not Kim Jong-un's grandfather, not Kim Jong-un's father. So why hasn't an American president met with with, with a North Korean leader? Well, you know, if you look back at the history of it, there's a million reasons. I think the the major reason is the uh, North Korean leaders have have broken deals. Um, And Kim Jong-un has broken deals. Kim Jong-un is violating international rules. And so 
that means that we ought to be real tough in the negotiation. We shouldn't agree to much. We had a hearing in foreign relations, Jonathan, last week where two principal experts on North Korea came, and they said at a minimum there should never be even the contemplation of a deal unless North Korea is willing to completely disclose what it is that they have and allow that to be verified. Because if you don't know what it is they have, how could you trust that they'll do a deal? So um, I, I also think, you know, remember President Trump saying, well, I'll know in the first minute whether we'll get something. Yeah. I think the American public will, will know quickly, too, if they are willing to disclose what they have, then there's probably the grounds for further discussion. But if even the disclosure of what it is that they have is, uh, you know, is is difficult, then it, it will be hard to get to something that will be acceptable. But, Senator, shouldn't that disclosure of what they have, shouldn't that have been worked out before the two principles meet? Um, yes. In a, norm, in, a, in a normal world. Yes, it should be. <laughs> and look, who knows what they might have worked out, right? I mean, we, we don't know fully um, the degree to which the conversations either with Secretary Pompeo, President Trump's been asked if you had direct phone conversation and you won't won't answer that right, question. Right, kind of waffled on that. Yeah, so there might be more than we know. I'm, I'm a member of the Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committee, but I'm not assuming I know everything that they're doing. So, um, again, I'm, I'm skeptical. I, I say go into this with high hopes, but super low expectations. I think super low expectations <laughs> is the right way to go into right, it. Super low to, or, or no expectations at all. Maybe even that. How dangerous is it for the for, for the president, this president, to sit down alone with a leader like Kim Jong-un? Well, again, as long as whatever he might say we should do has to be blessed by Congress, I'm not, I'm not overly worried about that. Um, now, if the, this president starts to say, um, well, I'm going to do this and Congress doesn't have a say, it would scare the hell out of me. Uh, but I, I just believe we need to insist on the same degree of, you know, we should give the president the ability to conduct diplomacy. That is an Article II power. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to sign off on it. Wait. So from everything that's been reported so far, initially, it's just going to be the president and Kim Jong-un and translators and nobody else in the room. How... How scary is that, that he's going to be sitting in there? Yeah. And just in terms mm-hmm. of what's he going to give away? What are the concessions? Uh, how will we yeah. How will we yeah. know? Well, the, the, this president, I don't think, is going to be able to give away anything without Congress, you know, blessing it. And, and while Republicans haven't demonstrated much backbone standing up against this president, on this issue, um, for example, I'm, I'm on the Armed Services Committee. We just have a, an Armed Services authorizing bill on the floor right now that has an amendment in it that Republicans put in saying we would never agree to X, Y, or Z. Um, so I think Republicans are also real nervous about what the president may give way. As long as we all agree that whatever he does, there does have to be a congressional sign-off, then I'm less worried about the meetings. I'll tell you what I am worried about. Here, here's what I worry about, and there's at least sort of two big issues. This president is undercutting relationships with allies and cozying up to adversaries. Russia, obviously, but potentially North Korea. Um, again, if, if, if any deal has to be approved by Congress, that's a little bit of a check. But the undercutting of the relations with allies very much troubles me. And then in the negotiation with North Korea, Jonathan, here's, what's, here's what to watch. Watch whether North Korea is asking for things that would make China really happy. Um, because what my worry is, is that the president might 
like to might be willing to do a deal that that produces some gain on the Korean Peninsula, short term gain, but at the expense of broader U.S. withdrawal from the region in ways that would make uh, South Korea, Japan, Australia, India, Vietnam, a nation that wants more of our support to fight off Chinese dominance. I almost worry that China may be, you know, dictating some terms to Kim Jong-un and saying, look, if you get a deal that we really like, meaning the U.S. is backing away from influence in the region, then we'll make sure you're economically okay. So that is a significant concern I have. Uh, China working with North Korea to work this negotiation away that would lead more to Chinese dominance in the region. But again, as long as Congress is going to weigh in and say, no, you can't do that, or you can do that, we do have some check about that. Um, okay, so since you've brought it up about 10 times yeah. in the 10 minutes we've been sitting on. How confident are you that the Trump administration is going to bring whatever it is they work out, if they work something out with North Korea, to Congress, to you, for sign-off? I, I think that they will do everything they can to avoid coming to Congress. Uh, however, there are some things that are real clear. If the negotiation involves, for example, an end to the Korean War, uh, we're in a ceasefire. You know, you know this, but a lot of people are still surprised to hear we're in a ceasefire of the Korean War, but there was never a peace deal. Um, and that has been part of the North Korean kind of mythology, cosmology. The war isn't over. U.S. troops are on our border. They can invade any minute. That's why we need weapons. That's why we need nuclear weapons. So part of the big deal is a peace deal to end the Korean War. And, and that would involve recognizing the status quo of a divided Korean peninsula, which both sides might not have wanted to recognize for a variety of reasons for the 70 years. Um, but if they do that kind of a peace treaty, arguably it would be a treaty that would require a two-thirds vote in the Senate mm -hmm. to do that treaty. So that, that would have to come back to us at some point. The administration, just like the Obama administration, they felt like they could do the Iran deal without Congress. But Senator Corker and I and others wrote a bill that forced the president to bring it to Congress. Now, we set a standard that we thought was appropriately deferential, respecting the president's prerogatives as the executive. Was that the 90-day recertification yeah. um, well, on the, the Iran deal? The certification came out of that. The Iran okay. deal, uh, Bob Corker and I worked on a bill that passed in April of uh, 2015 that basically said to the president, and he, he told me, Tim, I'm going to veto this bill. I, I was one of the drafters. I'm going to veto this bill. I said, Mr. President... Not only won't you veto it because you're not going to be able to, it's going to get too many votes, but you'll thank me later. He, we set the terms of the deal, and the basic terms we set was you do a deal, do your best deal, you got to bring it back to Congress, and we have a 90-day window to act, uh, and that occurred in September 2015. And if we don't disapprove it, it's an approval, but you have to bring it to Congress, and it can't go into place until we have this opportunity to act. Um, obviously, if this rises to the level of a treaty, it takes a two-thirds vote of the Senate. Mm -hmm. uh, what we set up was if you touch congressional sanctions, you have to submit it to Congress 90 days. If we don't disapprove, it's an approval. We have to insist at least upon what the Iran uh, standard was. And again, if it's a treaty, the Constitution says it's a two-thirds vote. The Iran, the Iran standard, which... <laughs> I mean, it's... Around. Yeah, it's funny, but he would have... Uh, it, co congressional approval of it made it harder for Trump to back out. He wanted to back out on day one, and he couldn't, right. because Congress had put their imprimatur on it. It took him 18 months, and it's still... It's not like the deal is completely unwinding. Uh, European allies are generally staying in, although the president, by undercutting a, a peace deal 
that the uh, that the international community said was actually working on the Iran on the nuclear portfolio, he's made the world dramatically less safe. And he's probably undercut his ability to get a good deal with North Korea a little bit because they would say, well, why would we do a deal with the U.S. if the U.S. is going to back out of it anyway? Right. And that's from the Iran perspective. And then you've got, you know, the national security advisor saying, hey, well, let's do the the Libya model. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're Kim Jong-un, uh, yeah. you're looking at that, you're like, uh, no. That That's why that picture of You've got a, you know, John Bolton and a Steve Miller there. You've got people like Pompeo, uh, certainly our Secretary of Defense and head of the Joint Chiefs, not necessarily in the all the meetings, but they're clear and key advisors to the president on this. You have some rational people who understand the situation, and you have some people that I, I put in the kind of wacky slash conspiratorial mm-hmm. Camp. Let me ask you two two more things on North Korea before we move to the the drama in Canada. Um, when and I interview- that's so unusual to talk about the drama in Canada. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like talking about the the big fight that the nice neighbors the Smiths had. Um, when I interviewed Lisa Monaco, the former Homeland Security Advisor to mm-hmm. President uh, Obama, back in Jan- this past January, I asked her about the war of words between President yep. Trump and North Korea. And whether like this is nuts because Kim Jong-un is irrational. And I told her about how Republican told me, no, no, no. Remember, Kim Jong-un is actually acting rationally because he's trying to save his regime. Yeah, yeah. And if the nuclear weapons are what's going to save the regime, that that's what that is what he's going to do. Right. You, you agree with that? I think generally, yeah, brutal, but not irrational. I mean, if it's about saving the regime. And again, if you think of it. As the n- nobody was ever do a peace deal to end the Korean War, and the U.S. has troops on our border. It's not like North Korea has got troops on the Canadian border. Right. That would be drama in Canada. But we've got troops on their border, and so they say, look, the war isn't over, and troops are on our border. They can invade tomorrow, so we got to have weapons. That's their cosmology. And to get to where we need to go, we do need to make them realize that's not that's not a fear you have to have. And and our key folks, especially Secretary Mattis, completely get that. There's nothing that North Korea has that we want. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that they have that we want. What we do want is stability on the peninsula, and we want the safety of a neighbor where hundreds of thousands of Americans live. How helpful, then, is it to have a president of the United States who's tweeting things like little rocket man oh, it's, and it's, stuff it's, like it's that? Ridic- it's ridiculous. I mean, the, the, the president has made a number of mistakes, the stupid tweets. I mean, look, the, we... We don't even have an ambassador to right. South Korea. Who's the most nervous U.S. ally in the world, South Korea? Uh, finally, they have in May identified Harry Harris, and, and who's the former uh, head of the Pacific Command, and he would be very, very good. But to get 17 months into this difficult discussion over North Korea without the key State Department person on the ground who would be reassuring our most nervous ally, inexcusable, mm-hmm. inexcusable. So it is this mixture of haphazard, casual— you know, tweets that are unfortunate. Um, and yet there are, you know, again, there's also some sharp people who are at the table. It's just a question of does the president listen to him mm-hmm. or not? The, the the second thing is I, I interviewed Bob Kagan from Brookings yeah. um, on the on the uh, podcast back in March at the Brussels Forum. And that was when the South Koreans announced at the White House that President Trump said he would meet with Kim Jong-un. And that like set right. everyone's hair on fire. And Kagan said to me then, he said, you know, look, there's no harm in talking, but, you know, ultimately, he's probably going to end up buying the same carpet that other right. presidents yeah. have bought in the last 25 right. years. Right. Well, you um, you you would think that's the case, The you know, but, but again, I'm with Kagan on the talking is fine. 
dialogue guarantees nothing. The absence of dialogue usually leads to bad things. So, you know, that that is that is fine. There just has to be a check against a bad deal. And that check should be Congress. Should be Congress. Uh, The drama in Canada. So bad that you had um, Peter Navarro, president's trade advisor, who said on television, quote, there's a special place in hell for any foreign leader that engages in bad faith diplomacy with President Donald J. Trump and then tries to stab him in the back on the way out the door. He is talking specifically to Justin Trudeau, the leader of Canada. What did he do? He didn't do anything. Um, the, The Trump administration is filled with people with glass jaws who they love to punch people, but if somebody strikes back, they just they just can't believe it. They're 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 crybabies. I mean, President Trump can name call everybody all day long and somebody gets in his face a little bit and then they just, you know, like melt into a, a pool of uh, of of lukewarm water. I mean, they're, they're, it's just ridiculous. And so what do they expect that they're going to impose tariffs on, you know, our great trading partners, our allies? China is one thing, but you're talking about Canada, Mexico, the EU. You're talking about nations we're in alliance with. You think you're going to do that and there's not going to be a response? You don't know very much. So I think that the, uh, you know, the the scuffle over the weekend just shows, you know, how, uh, you know, just how kind of weak the administration is that they think they can dish it out. But as soon as somebody pushes back, you hear them whining and complaining to the ref. Cape Up is sponsored by Bowl and Branch. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code CAPEUP. Okay, so speaking of dishing it out, mm-hmm. uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor of The Atlantic, has a, 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 a new piece out. Um, the headline is, a senior White House official defines the Trump doctrine, quote, we're America, And then at the end, there is a quote from a friend of the president's who says, quote, there's the Obama doctrine and the, quote, Obama doctrine. He said, we're the Obama doctrine. Well, uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Well, yes, in in terms of how in terms of how they're operating. But what what? Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What group of friends would uh, go, would talk about that with uh, with Jeff Goldberg at the Atlantic? I mean, look. Here's the way I describe the Trump doctrine. He says America first. It's America alone. It's it's shredding alliances and cozying up to adversaries where we'll always be alone because our adversaries they ain't interested in us. They're interested in what they can get off of us, but they're not interested in us. So the Trump doctrine is America alone. Um, but there is, you know, sadly. In the Trump insecurity, a desire to undo Obama accomplishments, even though President Trump doesn't understand him. I have never heard him say one thing about the Iran deal to suggest he understands it. Not one. Not one factual thing about the deal. You hear the Trump folks talk, and they will never tell you that the first sentence of the first paragraph of the deal is that Iran reaffirms that it will never seek to purchase, acquire, develop nuclear weapons. They always act like, well, this was going to put Iran on a path to nuclear weapons. No, they promised that they would never do it, which gives the U.S. an enforceable obligation in international law up to and including the potential of military action if they break their word. But President Trump just lifted that obligation off their shoulders. Um, I don't think he understands anything about the deal. But what he does understand is that President Obama did 
Obamacare. President Obama did the Iran deal. President Obama did um, gas mileage standards that he wants to get rid right. of. President Obama did the Paris Climate Accord. This President Trump is so insecure about President Obama's accomplishments that all he needs to know is that President Obama did it, and then he's going to try to retract it, even against the advice of people like a Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, saying, stay in the Paris deal, stay in the Iran deal. He's getting advice from smart people saying you should stay in some of these things, and he's ignoring them because of of his insecurity about President Obama. Can the the Western alliance, first, can the United States, and then can the Western alliance— survive this everything we've talked about with north korea all of this about you know we're america um america first can can we survive this we we can look he's doing great damage the one thing we can't survive is blundering into a war that we shouldn't be in and um i do believe i i i care am very concerned arm serve i'm on armed service i'm in foreign relations i got a kid in the u.s marine corps i am very very concerned that this president is going to blunder us into an unnecessary war especially in the middle east that seems to be a very legitimate concern right now if we get into an unnecessary war that'll be cataclysmic um that'll be and so we have to battle against that every day the other things the breaches of protocol the weakening relationships with allies I am convinced, Jonathan, I think there's going to be another president in January of 2021. And whether that president is a Democrat or Republican, I predict that president will want to get us back to the table engaged with our allies. They won't let us sit back in the same chair from which President Trump exited. They're not going to let us back in the same chair, but they're going to want us exercising leadership. And the burden will be on our shoulders to articulate the, the power and strength of our leadership in the 21st century, not relying on old platitudes, but mm-hmm. articulated in a new way. Um, you know, the, the great biblical phrase, he who humbles himself shall be exalted, he who exalts himself shall be humbled. This has been a humbling moment for our nation in the world because of the mercurial um, nature of this presidency. But we're still needed. We still have so much to offer. We will be able to articulate it in a way where people will be glad that we're back, and I believe that we will be back. Um, so will you be that person in um, January 2021? I, I will be uh, supporting that person. Um, I, I'm going to be a U.S. senator on the Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committee if I get over my hurdle in November of 2018 right, in you Virginia. Are, uh, you are up for re-election yes. um, uh, this November. So you are saying right now, nope, you're not running. Yeah, I'm going to be a U.S. senator supporting that president. That's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, what do the Democrats have to do? Here's uh, here's what we have to do. I'm assuming you're asking sort of be successful in campaigns to make these things happen. I mean, yes. look, we, we have to first in 2018, what we learned in Virginia last year, we had a fantastic election. We didn't try to have a top down message that everybody had to follow. We took advantage of great grassroots energy, let it all happen. And that's what we need to do in 18. I think you're going to see great examples of campaigns. I'm I'm running a Virginia that works for all. That's the theme. And I'm running in every corner of the Commonwealth from Appalachia to high tech northern Virginia. You're going to see all these campaigns around the country. And I think we just take advantage of the energy. But then we'll have a hard task because then we have to look at what works in 2018. And I think we'll have a good November. Don't take it for granted. We'll work hard. But then we'll have to look at what works and then really discipline it down into here's what we do. We got to have a much crisper economic message. We, we, we have a tug of war in our party between what I call pro-growth Democrats and pro-regulation redistribution Democrats. 
In Virginia, we are the best turnaround project in the United States in the last 30 years, and we've done it by being pro-growth Democrats. We don't f define growth the same way as the Republicans do. They're about the stock market and, and uh, you know, GDP, and we're about wages and growth out of poverty and growth of startups of small businesses. We don't have the same strategy to get there. They're about less taxes, less regulation, and we're about infrastructure and skills and, and wa fair wage policy. So... But we have to show people that we got the better economic argument than the other guys. That's one thing we have to do. And then we have to campaign everywhere. You got to go to the places you know you'll lose so you won't lose really bad. Mm -hmm. So then how, how do Democrats get that message through when there is a president who uses one tweet as an enormously powerful megaphone to just trample all over anything yep. you do. I mean, you saw this yourself as the vice presidential nominee in 2016. You and, and Hillary Clinton, everyone's complaining. Why aren't you guys talking yeah. about the economy? It's like, I know you yeah. were talking about the <laughs> economy, but it couldn't get through because of the, the, the hurricane of... Go on. Yeah. Um, but, but by 2020, the, the Trump style will not be the new different thing. The Trump style will be I'm tired of this. <laughs> Americans are a little bit of a channel-changing bunch. And, you know, you get used to something, then you start to get tired of it. And I see evidence already in Virginia, in Virginia, which is a pretty good microcosm of states, that people are tired of the, the needless, stupid drama. How does that manifest itself? Is it people coming up to you and saying, oh, my God, what's up with this guy? Um, a little bit that. Or, or yeah, I kind of like his policy. I mean, supporters, I kind of like his policy, but I wish he'd lay off all the tweeting and everything. Or I'll go to parts of this, my state where he did really, really well in 2016. As you know, we won Virginia pretty handily, but there are parts of the state where he did well, Appalachia, for example. But I'll go to Appalachia and say, okay, I'm on the budget committee. president just sent his budget over. He wants to eliminate the Appalachian Regional Commission. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, Senator, I mean, that's like the principal economic tool we've had to do things out here. Okay, well, then you have to help me figure out a way to beat this president's budget proposal. He wants to slash the ag budget. Well, wait, we're an agri, you know, this is the agricultural part of the state. Um, uh, tariffs, and they're retaliating against, you know, soybeans and apples and pork and chickens yeah. right but in rural Virginia. And so I hear people starting to say, things. They're not saying, wish I had my vote back. Um, and I'm not asking them about how they're going to vote the next time, but they are having a feeling like this guy that we supported, you know, maybe he was working a line on us. Mm -hmm. and, and I and I see that out there. He has a solid base of supporters that aren't going anywhere, but he got 46 on election day. And, you know, I think that solid base of supporters is, is under 40. And, um, you know, we'll see where it goes. But I think people are figuring that the guy worked the line on him. Um, you are uh, on. Well, you care about criminal justice reform. Absolutely. You and Senator uh, Chuck Grassley of, of Iowa have um, co you're co-sponsoring the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act of 2017 um, has a lot of things that yeah. that need to be done. But how is this going to happen? How yeah, is this, this is actually going to how are you going to get this over the hurdle um, and pass out of the Senate when you've got a Senate majority leader who has got blinders on to everything? Well, and then you've got a president who talks about the issue right. but couldn't care less about it. Yeah, Jonathan, this is a hard one because even this bill, it is, it is a compromise bill that has a lot of good in it. So reduction of uh, mandatory minimums, especially for nonviolent offenses, nonviolent drug offenses especially, 
here's something that's cool about it, retroactive application. So if we change the sentencing standards and somebody's in jail right now and we'll hold on it, if that was the standard I shouldn't hmm. hear, we, we, you can let people out if this passes. There's also the increase, though, in some mandatory minimums in some more violent offenses. And so we still have to grapple with the netting out of this to make sure that it, it truly is a net positive. Um, but certainly on the nonviolent offense side, it's great to have Republicans willing to work with us. And that's great. It's a bipartisan bill. It's on the floor. However, we do have an attorney general that doesn't like right. it. We do have a number of senators, Republican senators who are trying to block it. We have some fair concerns expressed from the civil rights community that we need to make sure that the netting out is positive or not. So um, how do we make it happen? Let's take advantage of at least there is a bipartisan moment where you've got at least two strains of the Republican Party, an evangelical strain that believes in second chances and a cheapskate strain that believes in not spending, not taxing and spending. They want to come together to try to work with us on just reducing the sheer number of people that are in prison in this country. So we, we need to take advantage of it. But you're right. The, 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 when the AG is against it and others, it's tough. Um, and, until yeah. we pick up more Democratic seats. Right. I mean, ultimately what it means is changing the leadership in one of the two cha chambers so that you can at least start either stop what try to stop what they're doing, stop what they're doing and begin the process of <laughs> winding this right. down in yep. 2020. I have to get your your thoughts on um, President Trump's view of pardons and how he said the uh, uh, just a few days ago, um, hey, you know, if folks have friends or people they know who need a pardon, just come tell me and I and I will do it. That's not how this is supposed no, to work. No, that, no, it's a it's shocking. And I look, I had pardon power when I was a governor. I had power to pardon and commute state sentences, but we very carefully considered it. You'd get recommendations from my parole board and then the attorney general's office, and then you would really contemplate it. Similarly, at the federal level, it's always been, you know, a pardons office going through the Justice Department, recommendations to the president. But he seems to more believe it's just like something he can do, you know, one here, one there, well, what the, suits his fancy. But the Constitution, like he, but he can. He can. That's the thing. He can. But and, and, and I'll tell you what I worry more about on the pardon side is less the, oh, you know, this one will make me popular that. I'm worried about his assertion about pardons in connection with the Mueller investigation, um, his assertion that he thinks he could pardon himself. Um, I think he's already used the pardon power to try to send messages to people connected to the Mueller investigation. Why pull the Scooter Libby case from obscurity right now and decide to pardon a White House person who had obstruction of justice uh, charges that clearly is trying to send a signal to people around him. If you're wrapped up in this investigation, don't worry, I can take care of you if you're good to me. It's almost equivalent in my view, in my opinion, it's almost equivalent to kind of like witness tampering or suborning of perjury to suggest I got this pardon power and I'm going to dangle it out there. You better be nice to me. Um, and the president could easily find his use of the pardon power pushing Congress into a very constitutionally confrontative relationship with them. I mean, it, it, well, as long as Republicans control the House and the Senate, this constitutional, uncomfortable state will never be. Pro probably not. Although if the president, um, I think if the president were to make a move on Mueller or Rosenstein or the attorney general over this investigation, or if he were to use his pardon powers to pardon somebody who's 
in the middle of this Russia investigation, I think there are enough Republicans in the Senate who will stand up with us to, to say, you've gone too far, and now there has to be a consequence for this. Um, now, the House, I'm not, I don't think they do anything as currently constituted. I think we have a good chance of picking up the House in November. But as currently constituted, they won't do much. But I do think there are enough senators who will stand to protect this country against an executive gone wild if he starts to use pardon powers the wrong way. Do you think he can pardon himself? He no. seems to believe he can pardon himself. Nope, absolutely not. Assuming I can pardon myself if I've done anything wrong and I haven't yeah. done anything wrong. Right. I mean, yeah, you'll see these straight tweets just kind of apropos of nothing. You know, not that it matters anyway, but, you know— um, I didn't fire Comey because of the Russia investigation when he said on television, Lester Holt, that he did. I mean, clearly, this is a guy who wakes up in a cold sweat about this investigation. He is extremely frightened about it. And usually, if you're frightened about something, there's a reason. Can I ask you about the, the demons unleashed by President Trump's candidacy yeah. and now his presidency? Mm -hmm. uh, we Charlottesville yeah. was on his watch. August the, of last year. The way he talks about the NFL players, about Colin Kaepernick and why he's kneeling and demonstrating a fundamental misunderstanding about why Colin Kaepernick yeah. is leaning, kneeling by saying, hey, these NFL players should come to me and tell me who they want pardon. Right. That's not what any of this no, is about. No, it, it, um, The way you ask the question is going to demons unleashed. This president didn't create division and tension, but he's stoking it. Um, it, it existed. It, it exists. Right. I mean, I was a civil rights lawyer in the South for 17 years before I got into state politics and was the cat mayor of the, you know, old capital confederacy in Richmond. We've got a history of division because we're human beings and we're imperfect. And there have been institutions like slavery that have this long tail in our society. And, and so there's all these challenges we have. It's just that we expect our leaders, Democrat or Republican in the president's office, to just always be about incrementally bringing us a little bit closer together. This president has no interest in that. He wants to pick a fight every day with somebody. He's willing to call immigrants animals. He's willing to tear kids out of the hands of their parents. The NFL one is an interesting one, Jonathan, because um, the, 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 the Virginians, many, who drafted the Constitution in Philly in 1787 got a lot wrong, but they also got a lot right. And one of the things they got right was they knew they had to hand power to everyday people, and they knew that voting wouldn't be enough. So they guaranteed the right to peacefully assemble. They guaranteed the right to petition government for redress of grievances in the First Amendment. You only guarantee something to encourage it. Hmm. And why do you encourage it? They encouraged it because they knew it would be necessary to keep government abuses in check, to check against an overreaching king-like executive. So when the president goes after peaceful protest, he's going after First Amendment protected behavior that was put in the Constitution to protect people against an overreaching executive. And he just shows so little understanding for this. So there are a lot of demons that have been unleashed. In, in Charlottesville, the Heather Heyer, the paralegal who was killed, these two state troopers, both of whom I knew, who had to be on duty that day and both lost their lives. And then this president, Jonathan, you know, when, when, a, when a Somali got in a car and ran into people in Columbus, Ohio, between the president's election and inauguration, he flew to Columbus to meet with family members and comfort them. When this happens in the Ramblas in Barcelona, he calls it terrorism immediately. But when it happens 90 miles from the White House in an iconic city known because of President Jefferson, 
he says, well, there's good people on both sides and he can't call it out. I mean, that that infuriated Virginians, because in Virginia, sadly, we know the scar tissue and pain of bigotry and racism and slavery. And we sort of feel about it. Been there, done that, got the scar tissue, ain't going back. When anybody tries to drag us back or when a president tries to suggest it's not a big deal, it infuriates Virginians. And and that's one of the reasons that the president's numbers in Virginia are pretty bad right now. Well, it, it infuriates Virginians. But why doesn't it seem to infuriate Republican Republicans on in, in Congress, but particularly Republican leaders in Congress? Why are you surprised that there's been so much silence from yeah. Republicans on the actions of, of this president, from well, their own party. You, and you've asked two questions. I'm going to separate them. You say, why, why doesn't it infuriate some Republicans? It actually does. But why are they silent? That's the real question. Two-thirds of my Republican colleagues in the Senate deeply, deeply worried about this president. They're worried about his temper. They're worried about expressions of bigotry or stoking bigotry. They're worried about all of this stuff. They're worried about what he's going to do with North Korea. Or or this fight with Canada or being cozy to Russia, they're worried. But of that two-thirds, five or ten will say it. Most will not say it publicly. Why not? Because they're afraid of President Trump's supporters. That 30 percent of America that is just rock solid for President Trump, and it might be 33 or it might be 27, but whatever that number, that is the core of the Republican voting base right now. And so any Republican that speaks out against the president. Bob Corker has been, who's a true Republican, but he's spoken out against the president. Jeff Flake has too. They find that immediately their own voters abandon them. Yeah. And they're both retiring. Yeah. And so they, they realize once you cross the Rubicon and you, you say what you think about this president, your voters sort of abandon you. And, and, and that's why so many are being silent. But I know from my conversations that a huge number of the Republican senators are deeply, deeply worried about this president. So you're reasonably confident that if the president fires Rosenstein and or Mueller, that this silent two thirds will stand up for the Constitution and for the republic in face of... Jonathan, I think they will. Those in the Senate. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If I had my senior senator, Mark Warner, sitting right next to me, he would say, okay, man, you're such an optimist. You're such a Pollyanna. (laughs) I I always am looking at more of the glass half full and he's looking the glass half empty. But Mm -hmm. I've been having these conversations with Republicans within two months of this administration starting. I've been having this conversation. I know how they feel. I don't have to convince them of anything. They just have to be willing to say uh, what they think. And I believe if, if, you know, certain red lines are crossed. Yes, in the Senate, not necessarily the House, but in the Senate, I think many, many Republicans will stand strong. Well, let me ask you this as a last question and bring you back to the person we both know, Bob Kagan from Brookings. Um, He's working on a new book called The Jungle Grows Back. It's all about how basically without American leadership and without leadership from the the Western alliance, democracy um, will die. Yeah. Yeah. Are we witnessing the death of democracy now? Well, we're, we're witnessing a massive challenge to it. You know, the Stevie Wonder song, Love's in Need of Love Today. Democracies mm-hmm. are in need of love today. We, I think we assumed in a globe that has democracies and that has authoritarians and now has non-states, I, I think we've assumed that, well, the democracies are going to be fine. There's many more of them than there were at the close of World War II. They're on every continent. Well, we feel like, well, we can take those for granted. Now let's focus on, you know, authoritarians and let's focus on 
on non-state groups, but you see weaknesses in democracies, weakness in the eurozone, anti-Semitism increasing in democracies, Brexit, Catalan independence movement. We could, you know, our own election, uh, the Russian attack on the election, which is acknowledged. So you see democracies demonstrating some weaknesses and you see authoritarians saying, see, it's a weak government model. You can't, you know, expect it to work very well. They love it. They love it when democracies look weak. Um, so the democracies need some shoring up. Our foreign policy can no longer just be about, you know, challenging the authoritarians. It also has to be elevating uh, and supporting democracies. I, I think, Jonathan, we don't have the organizations that we need to do that. We have military treaty alliances. We have an organization like the OECD. But so many of these organizations are kind of northern hemisphere, you know, America and Europe. We got to include the Indias and the South Africas and Colombia. Colombia just got into the uh, OECD, and that's a positive. But we have to include democracies of of all kinds from all different corners of the globe and then start to make the case again for the virtue of the model and sharing best practices and committing ourselves to rooting out bad things like corruption, for example. The, the worst thing, the worst competition to an authoritarian is neighboring democracies that are succeeding. They're trying to undermine the democratic model, and we got to stand up for the virtues of the model, not at the point of gun, the gun for anybody. I don't want to, I don't think we should say we're the indispensable nation. I think we should just try to be the exemplary nation. We're much more likely to be indispensable if we try to be exemplary. But isn't it difficult to be exemplary and indispensable and do all of these things to help bring love to democracy when the president of the United States shows such antipathy towards those institutions and the very ideals yep. surrounding democracy. I think that we're not going to be able to show this off with this president for the reasons that you described. But if we do show that our people and our institutions are strong enough to survive the results of a bad election and, hey, we can come out of it and we can fix it. We can learn some things and we can fix it. That's also a positive lesson because, um, you know, anybody can have a bad election. Your capacity to fix mistakes and improve beyond them is a real measure of your capacity. And I think we're going to show that. Tim Kaine, former mayor of Richmond, former lieutenant governor of Virginia, former governor of Virginia, senator from the great state of Virginia, Commonwealth of Virginia, the Thank Democratic vice much. presidential nominee. Thank you very much for being here. Yeah Jonathan, be yeah, Jonathan, great to be with you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington Washington, Washington Post. Post.